Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's great to have you here with us as we continue in our series called The Word Became Flesh. And this series actually culminates on Christmas Eve, which is just two weeks away. Two weeks away. Where did December go already? Um, but we're going to be having five services. So there'll be no Saturday evening services that weekend. All Sunday on New, on New Year's, excuse me, Christmas Eve. Uh, and so we have a 10 o'clock, a noon, a 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, and 6 o'clock service. So there's five services on Christmas Eve. And we, uh, we do that so that, you, that we have plenty of space for you to invite your family and friends to join us. Christmas Eve is a pretty easy time to invite someone to go to church with you. They're kind of already in the spirit of Christmas. And now we want to kind of reveal the person of Christmas. And so we hope that you'll look around and see if there's anyone in your family or your friends or people you work with who aren't connected yet to a church who would be open to an invitation. Just invite them. And I hope you can uh, enjoy and celebrate this time with us. We're getting our minds around one verse in the Bible. It's John 1.14, and it kind of explains what happened when Christ was born in Bethlehem. It's called the incarnation verse. And uh, in, in John chapter 1, verse uh, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we've been taking each week uh, through this series to kind of break down a different phrase of this. Last week we looked at that first phrase, and the word became flesh. This week we're looking at what it meant for Christ to come and dwell among us. What does it look like for Christ to dwell? That that word uh, in the Greek is eskenosin, which doesn't mean much to you if you don't, if you don't understand or know Greek. But uh, it's from the root word skeneo, which also doesn't help you. But some English-speaking pastors have said, well, see that God took on skin, skin-ao. No, that's not what it means. It means that God set a tent up among us. He built a house to be with us. Where do we see in Scripture? Where do we see throughout the Bible's uh, revelation of who God is and who Jesus is? Where do we see this picture of God dwelling among people? Remember that God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden. And it wasn't just that they had a good relationship together before they fell into sin. They had a great relationship with God. We aren't really told what this relationship looked like. But they walked with him. They probably discovered with him and had took adventures with him on the creation. I mean, if God is going to create, just in this one area, 300 species of beetles alone. And what, you know, I, I'm not a big beetle fan. I mean, the music is good, but I'm not, not up for the species of beetles in my home. But, but if you look at that, I mean, just three, God is a creative God. And he was probably sharing that and enjoying that with humanity. We aren't told how long that went, but in Genesis 3, very early on in the scriptures, there's this picture of life with God and then a picture of life without God. When Adam and Eve chose to live without God, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth, which used to be together, 
separated and sin separated them. In the past, we get a picture of God, of men walking away from God. It says in Genesis 3, 8, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so you get this picture of God asking a rhetorical question, not because he didn't know, because he wanted to show them what, what, that they've walked away. He asked, where are you? And they said, we heard, we heard you and we were afraid. And so we hid. And he said, who told you? Who told you this? And it's just kind of a self-revealing issue of what happens when you live life without God. You hide, you cover, and, and you fear God. You, you run away from him. You don't want him in your life. But God didn't walk away. God didn't walk away even though we chose to walk away. He uh, still wanted to dwell with us. And so God started a people through Abraham and this people he, he took out of Egypt where they were slaves under Pharaoh and under the leadership of Moses, he took them out into the wilderness. This is a barren area, but God wanted to live with them there. He told Moses to build a tabernacle, a house, a tent with his people. Look what he says in Exodus 25 verse 8. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so what God asked Moses to do, very specific instructions. And if you follow those instructions, this is an artist's rendering of what that tent among the people looked like, that dwelling of God among the people. There was an outer court, an outer area with the fence there. And then there was a tent within the tent, the Holy of Holies, which is where the glory of God shone down from heaven. And it was in that place that God created what's called a holy space. In other words, where, where the sin of men and women could be paid for by the blood of a lamb. So one day out of the year, the day of atonement, if you're Jewish, Yom Kippur, and one person, the chief priest, the high priest could enter into that space and would sprinkle blood over the altar. This is kind of bloody. It's not something we like to talk about in 2017, but this was a reality. Would sprinkle that and then, he would, that blood would be a covering for the sins of the people and they, their sins would be covered by what God would do in forgiving them. That one person, one day a year, would give them access and forgiveness with God. So the story continues and these children of Israel go and they take the promised land and they set up shop and they start up a kingdom with a king, Saul, and then David. David had a heart to dwell with God. And so he wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And uh, God said, no, you can't do that. You're a man of bloodshed. So your son will build it. And so he raised the resources and he planned it out and, and had it designed. And, and God said to Solomon in 1 Kings 6, verse 13, he says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. And so Solomon would build the temple. And that temple would be destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. All those items would be carted away and then they would return. After 400 years, Herod the Great set up a temple in Jerusalem to pacify the Jews who wanted the temple to be restored. And he restored the sacrifices back in Jerusalem. And this is an artist's rendering of, of actual what that temple looked like. If you look at it, it kind of, kind of looks like that tabernacle a little bit, but a permanent structure. 
Again, an outer court and then that inner holy of holies where one day a year, one person, that priest would go into that place and offer forgiveness for all the people, all the people. And so God was dwelling with his people, but it didn't seem like an incredible relationship until Jesus came. And what does it say about Jesus when he came, when he was born? Matthew one twenty three. It says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is dwelling with his people again. But here it wasn't something of one person, one day of the year. It's Jesus. He's life with him. God wants to be with us. He doesn't want to hold us at a, he doesn't want us to hold at, you know, with an arm's length. He wants us to walk and to live and to be with him. God came near in the incarnation. But then Jesus lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross and he paid the price for our sins. And he rose again the third day. And so that death and sin no longer can have mastery over us. He broke that power of death and sin to all who believe in him. And so Jesus now doesn't leave us as orphans when he resurrected. He put the Holy Spirit to live in us. Paul would call it in 1 Corinthians. He would call it a temple that our bodies, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit actually dwells in you? Now, no longer is it one person, one day of the year. It's full and final access to God through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is in us. That God would be revealed through us. A follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, is someone who reveals the presence of God on earth. And so as followers of Jesus, we bring that kingdom back through the very presence of God in us and through us in our world. But it's not just you. It's everyone who believes. And that's the church. Paul would say about the church in Ephesians 2.22 that in Christ, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And that's a whole picture of what Paul sees the church as is that we are a place that God lives with us. And he lives in us. And he lives through us. So that as people who aren't living or walking with God, when they see us, they ought to see a better picture of who God is because God is living here. He is with us. He is near to us. And so that's the whole picture of the church bringing back the glory of God to this world through the presence of Christ in us because God came to dwell with us. But it, the story's not just in us. And the story's not just for our generation and future generations. It's this full and final generations for all people of all languages, tribes, and, 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 uh, and nationalities. God is going to regather all people. And for eternity, it will be a picture of God dwelling with his people. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, and the last chapter, chapter 21, gives a picture of God fully and finally dwelling with his people. In, in the future, we get a picture in Genesis 21, verse 3. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him 
as their God. And it doesn't just say this like this is going to happen. This is, this is the full and final restoration of all things. When God comes and, and has a reckoning with evil and judges all evil and restores good, he's also going to set up life where we dwell with him forever, forever. What will this look like? What will heaven for eternity, life with God, look like? Well, John continues. I love that he continues because he really kind of fills our hearts when he does this. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Any of you going through mourning or sorrow or tears this week? That at the full state, a full dwelling with God, he will wipe away those tears. That death shall be no more. Any of you lose a loved one this year or in years past and you long to be restored with them. Death will be no more. Neither there sh- shall there be mourning, because death is gone, right? Or crying, nor pain. How many of you are in constant pain or know someone you love who's in constant pain each day? No more pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is life with God for eternity. Now think, this is, this is how the attitude of the church is to be since this is going to, going to happen is that we ought to long to be with Christ. We ought to be people who just cannot wait for this event. We, we shouldn't be people who put down tent pegs so strong on this earth that we're dreading the return of Christ. Or, you know, I always had this nightmare that before I got married, God would return and I wouldn't get to experience marriage, specifically the honeymoon night. <laughs> and so I was like, God, just wait, just wait, because I'm saving myself, doggone it. And I had this nightmare he would return right after I said I do, and I'd miss out. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just sharing my mind with you. There's some things that we can long for more than the presence. Yeah, it's a rare pastor to go into that on Sunday morning, I'm sorry. (laughs) But yeah, that longing, if for anything apart from Christ, is going to distract you from when he does return. And I think about it, when you long to be with someone, you clear away everything in your schedule, everything in your bank account, everything with your interests, all your attention is to be with that person. And when they finally come, you don't want anything to interrupt that. This is the longing of our hearts. And it's what Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, he'd say in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, the ultimate picture of what the incarnation is, folks, is that the incarnation brought God near to us. Jesus came and dwelt with us. To be our God and us, his people. And more than God appearing to say, I exist, world, I exist. He came to be near. He came to be relational. He came to be close. Your sin will not drive him away. His love will bring you near. So if we have this picture of what happened and the, and in, in the incarnation and that Christ returned, he came near to us. What's keeping you from him? There's a lot of reasons of what keeps people from wanting to draw near to God. Uh, some of it can just be, we just don't know that God wants to be near. We have a picture of religion that is, God's ticked off at us, don't mess up. I mean, he's keeping that list. It's not too far away from Santa. He's keeping a list. He knows who's been naughty or nice. So you better be good for goodness sake, church. 
God is good. You're bad. Be good. Let's pray. You know, that's how church can go sometimes. And so it kind of goes, no, God, I, I don't want you to shine the light on me. I don't want to be naked before you and see you to see every... He sees it already. He already sees it, and he's not surprised. He's seen it in people far beyond you. But then there's just this angle of fear. I don't want God telling me how to live. I kind of like life on my own terms. I don't like any authority. You know, we, we need to fight for the right to party. I mean, that's what the mentality is. And so we don't want God messing with our stuff. We don't want him telling us what to do. And so that's why we keep him away. Others of us have an intention to be near to God. We really would like to grow. And I think that's more what what you are because you got up on a Sunday morning and you came to church. That's becoming a rarer and rarer thing in the United States. So you probably do want a deeper relationship with God. But there's just so many distractions There's so many distractions. I mean, there's the kids. There's the marriage or the lack there of a marriage. There's all these, there's the work and the the workload that you've got. There's all these activities that are happening. So easy. And then there's my screen. My screen that makes me a zombie. And it just keeps me. I don't spend eight and a half hours on screens a day. There's so many distractions in our world to drawing near to God. Here's one thing I know. I know that do I, do I long for or do I dread being with God each day? If I dread being with God, in other words, I've got so many things to do. I mean, then I've lost something. I've lost that, lost that heart. I've lost God's heart. And I need to get that restored. Well, what is it with you? If, you, if I were to say, what gets in the way of you drawing near to God on a daily basis? What would that be? What is that consistent issue? Hurry, hurries the enemy to any relationship. Is it fear? Is it pride? I've left a space in your notes, if you're taking notes, for you just to write down one word or one, don't show it to anyone around you. What's one thing in your life that, that keeps you from drawing near? If we have a God who wants to be near, Because there's a passage that is aimed to pulling people away from themselves and into a life with Christ. A daily walk with him based on what he's done with us and for us through the person and the work of Christ. It's in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews, and if you are of a Jewish background, you know what Hebrews means. It's to the Jewish people. And it was to the Jewish Jewish people who are... Who are still looking at the old way of a priest going at the day of atonement to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. It was uh, a Jewish people who wanted their own righteousness to, to make them right before God through the law and through the prophets. But here, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus came and he fulfilled everything for us. He is the one who brings us near to God. We don't need sacrifices. He, through his body on the cross, paid the full and final sacrifice for our sins. Look at how he details it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Let me just pause because remember how we were saying? One day of the year, one person, that high priest, would take the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle it over the altar. 
hear what Jesus did? That was a holy place that was one person doing for all the people, but it was one place, the tabernacle or the temple. But hear what Jesus said is, no, he just made this whole world a holy place through his work on the cross. We don't have to go to a place anymore to be forgiven. We don't need another priest anymore because Jesus is, look at verse 21, he is a great priest over the house of God. By the way, that, that priest had a daunting task because before the holiness of God, if he would have messed up, God would have struck him dead. So I would have not wanted to be the pastor back in those days. Because he would wear a robe and he would have bells on the bottom of that robe. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, all the other priests would strap a, uh, a rope on his ankle. And he would walk in there and they would take the rope and kind of be listening. Ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. And he would offer that sacrifice. If he paused, maybe they might have... Is he still there? Still there? Because they would have been struck dead if they went before the presence of the Lord. No, I, I don't want that job. I don't want that job. And that's why I'm so thankful for Jesus who did this. He's our high priest now. We don't need another high priest. And since we have the high priest, look at what's, what it says in verse 22. Let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All this imagery talks about the reality of Christ coming, offering himself as our sacrifice. And now we have been sprinkled clean by his work for us. And so what it, what it means is that we don't have to stay away anymore. Our sin's not driving us away. God's love is calling us in and his sacrifice for us is calling us back. Church, draw near to a God who draws near to us. So it means a few things for us. Number one, we can know. Since God dwells with us, we can know him. And we can begin to understand Christ. There's something about when, before I was married, I could know about my wife. But when we got married and we lived together, I now understand my wife, right? Before it was, oh, isn't that cute? Look at how she acts. It's a little bit different than me. At home, it's like, what in the world is that? (laughs) Right? And that can drive you apart. But if you keep loving that person, and by the way, you don't know how selfish you are until you try to love someone else. And God has just reformed my heart through marriage. And I've realized, man, I basically got married so that my needs could be met. And what I've realized is God has transformed my heart so that I show up to give up myself to love my wife. Marriage is more about giving up than it is about getting. And so God is just trans, but it's, she's shown me that, that the more time you spend with Jesus, since you practice life near him and you live life with him, you can know and understand him. He's not abstract. He's not a God who says, you do your part and maybe I'll love you today. No, he's a God who, who selflessly loves us and gives and seeks us and draws us near. So we can know and we can begin to understand Christ. Secondly, we can have a relationship. Why? Because God has cleared away everything through Christ for us. The sin that got in our way, the sacrifice that was needed. I mean, God's righteous sacrifice was provided in Christ. He lived perfectly for us. None of us can be perfect. No matter how we try, none of us can. You don't know how bad you are until you try to be good. 
Then you really realize how broken you are. But then we could do what a lot of other religions do. We can look around and go, at least I'm not as bad as he is. Or it's not as bad as she is. And as long as I'm better than he and she, I'm good with God. No, God doesn't. You don't have the right to make the standard. Because you're broken. And if I'm left to my own, I tend to live the way I want to live. And I tend to see life the way I want to see it. And my way really sometimes can be the way I want the rest of the world to operate. But I'm not God. And everyone else is not responsible to me. We have a God who says, no, everything that separated us, I live for. I died for. I rose from the dead for. And so now we can have relationship. Everything God calls you as a follower of him is relationship. It's friendship. It's family language that the scriptures use to describe what a life near to God is. Like a heavenly father. That's family. That's family language. God draws us in. We as his children, we can have a relationship with God. But look what else it says in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So your, the confidence of your faith is, is what God is saying is rely on Christ. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Because God is near to us in Christ, we can trust him. And the imagery he is here is, whether it's wind or waves, we grab onto something that's solid, a firm foundation for the soul, being Christ, and we don't let go. God is saying, you can trust me. Why? Because we trust not in our own performance, but in the promises of God. And his promises is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, before, if it's all about performance and it's not about the promise, if it's all about performance, I'm always going to be wondering, am I good enough? How good do I have to be? So on a really good day, I can go, wow, God, look what I did. And on a really bad day, I go, man, how God, how can you love me? And so you'll ride the roller coaster of performance. And that's why Jesus comes in and says, no, why don't you rely on me rather than your performance? Now, I don't know how many of you come from a background where you basically think that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll get into heaven. And that may work when you compare yourself with people around you. It doesn't work with God. God says perfection. You got to be perfect. And for that, there's only one man who was perfect. And that was Jesus. That's why we needed Jesus to live perfectly for us because we're paired with him when we come to Christ. We rely on him and his work for us. You may not realize this, but when you get baptized, when we put you under the water, we don't keep you there. We bring you up out of the water. But when we put you in the water, we do that for a purpose. And that is to show how your life is paired with Christ. You died in Christ. And you've been raised. That's why we bring you up eventually. We bring you up and we celebrate that his resurrection was for you. And you're paired with him. So everything that you have with God is because of your faith in the work, the completed work of Christ. You can rely on him. 
Look what else it says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you remember when I talked about Revelation 21, last chapter, last book of the Bible, when God will dwell with his people? That's what this writer is talking about, the day. That day when is the final reckoning where all evil is thrown out and good and righteousness will reign on earth as it is in heaven. And God will restore himself with us. He's our God. He's our people. We're his people in the new heaven and the new earth. That day is approaching. No one knows except the father when that's going to happen. So we are to live with that in mind. And because that's true then, church, do two things. Number one, comfort each other. Comfort, since this is true, then let's consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. So even on our worst day, we have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus in us. Even on our worst day, when we have messed up, we have the payment of Jesus comforting our hearts that you're good with God, not because of what you've done or what you've not done, but because of what he's done. And you can stop trying to impress God and other people around you. And you can humbly receive the work of God in your lives. And when you're going through suffering, when you're going through pain, when you're going through loss, when you're going through doubt, when you're going through despair, there is a God. And he is not distant. He is near. Everything that stands in your way. You are not alone. You don't have to be isolated. Live, draw near to God. That ought to comfort us. We ought to be people who comfort each other. I I love drawing together and being near as a church family on moments like this. Because we comfort each other on the reality of the person and the work of Jesus. We're better together than we are isolated. But it's not just comfort, it's also confidence. We can have confidence in Christ. Look at how this passage started out. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, since since we don't have any limitations, any restrictions in a relationship with God anymore, draw near, church. You have confidence. You have confidence to deal with sin in your life. You have confidence to deal with doubt in your life. You have confidence to make a difference in this world. And the integrity of the object you place confidence in will determine the risk you take with your life. That's why Paul would say, I consider everything that was to my gain, Greek word, skublia. There's an English word for it, but I can't say it in church. I count it all as that. My best thing, my best performance, my best accomplishment, scublia, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Nothing. And so he leveraged his whole life, not only to dwell with God, to live with God, but to to dwell with others so that they might see and trust and rely on his God. That's our call as a church. As you think about this upcoming uh, Christmas offering that we're taking, we're going to be focused on two key areas. We're going to be focused on taking the scriptures to a people who don't have the scriptures in their language. And over the course of 2018, we're going to go and let the scriptures dwell with people. 
And so we're translating, we're going to be translating the scriptures uh, into a people group in the Philippines who do not have it. Why? Because when we do this, we say, God speaks your language. And there's just something about people that melts their heart when they realize God speaks their language. He knows of them. He loves them. And there's, and, and he wants to be near them. The other one here is here in town. And we're going to be planting another church in the Highcrest neighborhood. The Highcrest neighborhood has a 94% poverty rate. It's right here in Topeka. We've been there for five years. And we've been serving that and building relationships. And now we believe it is time to plant a church. And so there's going to be uh, quite a few expenses in planting that church and launching it and sustaining that church. We do not ever expect for that church to pay for itself. We don't. We don't. But it's worth it. And it's going to require us to go and dwell in that neighborhood. We have Jeremy and Paige Wynn. They live in that neighborhood. And they reach out to people every day and are connected through relationships. Our new pastor for that, Jonathan Sublett, whom you'll meet next weekend. I really hope you can come back. You'll meet Jonathan. He'll come up here on stage and we'll meet him and his family. And so I really want you to come back to meet him. But he is, he just bought a home and is moving in that neighborhood also to dwell with people. We have other people. I talked to a husband and wife who are going to move into that neighborhood just so they can be within walking distance of that church and walking distance of reaching that neighborhood. But we may need you to think about, would you leave a comfortable seat in a church that you know to go to another church so that others might know? It may be uncomfortable, but is God moving in any of your hearts to go to a place uh, here in Topeka that has a great need? We'll need some of you to help launch that. But we'll need everyone to give to it. No matter what God has given you, as you look at how you've been blessed by him, we want you to give sacrificially so that we can pull this off in the, in the new year. And we'll need you to be generous. So I just ask you, think and pray and give as God leads you uh, as we take our Christmas offering for this. Folks, you are a generous people. You're just like me. When, when we find what joy is, is the greatest joy of our heart, you move whatever you can to make it happen. And this is an opportunity for us in our generation to make a difference here in Topeka. I hope you'll consider that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we could be together. Thank you for giving us a picture, Old and New Testament, of what it was like for you to dwell with people. And we thank you that we live in an age where there's no other sacrifices needed except the one of Jesus, the full and final sacrifice that allows us to dwell with you and you with us. Thank you so much for giving us the greatest gift ever given and for those who have believed the greatest gift ever received. Heavenly Father, may we bring heaven to earth as we practice life, as we dwell on this earth. May, may our lives be more about Jesus than about ourselves. It's for his name, for his glory that we pray. Amen.